This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 4, Episode 3. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Excess Sites. Today is Wednesday, October 12th, 2021, as of the recording of this episode, and I am your host, Riley Bowman, your humble host. Last week, I was apparently, I, I decided to decided to be your esteemed host, which was a Freudian slip. I am your humble host, Riley Bowman, and this is our esteemed co-host, Matthew Marister. <laughs> well, there's something about uh, somebody will be humbled. I don't know. I don't want to go there, but... Uh, yeah, it's good to be here, man. Yeah, and uh, got a good number of you guys watching us online. Thanks for being a part of this episode with us. If you're just joining us for, for the first time ever on the podcast, just know that uh, we record these live with video simulcast to Facebook and YouTube. The podcast audio itself is published to our normal podcast feed twice per week, uh, assuming we record two episodes per week. And the uh, podcast actually is published uh, somewhere between five and eight days after we record uh, the actual shows live. So just so you know how it works, once a month we do this episode, the News and Gear Reviews show. So we cover industry news and share a couple of gear reviews, both from myself and Matthew or whoever's co-hosting along with me. And then uh, once a month, we also do a, ju- a Justified Saves episode, we call it, or our Defensive Gun Use episode. We also have a Legislative News Updates episode uh, that occurs once per month as well, which will be next week or the week after. And then, you know, we try to throw in some other interesting topics to discuss, and sometimes we have some guests. So this afternoon, I'll be recording an episode together with Amy Langdon from Langdon Tactical. We're going to have a great chat. It's going to be a good time, so look look forward to that. <clears throat> um, today's episode is sponsored, brought to you by Guardian Nation. GuardianNation.com is the place to learn more. Guys, our Guardian Nation membership is... Uh, well, about as popular as ever based on the number of members right now. We had a bunch of you that joined us at our first annual Guardian Conference in Oklahoma City. Uh, you know, I'm going to just t- chat real quick, Matthew, about the fact that we have the Guardian Nation membership and a lot of, and then we use the word Guardian with a couple of other things. And, and a lot of people, um, uh, call everything that we do Guardian Nation, which uh, is which is fine, but it's not exactly true. Uh, so, like I've heard people call this the Guardian Nation podcast, <laughs> and it, and it's it's not. It's the Concealed Carry podcast, um, or uh, someone referred to the Guardian Nation conference. <clears throat> well, it wasn't limited to, limited to only Guardian Nation members, so it wasn't the Guardian Nation conference, but we had a lot of Guardian Nation members in attendance and Guardian Nation members got a big discount. Um, but it is the Guardian conference, which will be taking place again in 2022. We think in October, still working on confirming the dates. Uh, 
and the, the distinction I only mentioned is because the Guardian Nation membership is that is the name of the membership program. So, guys, you, you pay a little bit each month, or you can join quarterly or annually and get access to not only free content that are that's available to members only, but also you'll get access to a bunch of discounts, such as discounts off of CCW Safe, discounts off of uh, off of ammo from our next sponsor that I'll mention here momentarily and a, a bunch of other different things. So check that out. And also Guardian Nation members get access to uh, special opportunities like, well, the Guardian Conference. Well, you got a big discount off of that. That's another discount. Uh, you guys get access to our Guardian Nation live broadcasts or sometimes we refer to as our GN live broadcast, which this month looks like is going to be Ryan Kleckner for our guest. So just a, a heads up there. And so anyway, um, Guardian Nation membership has a lot to offer. Go to guardianation.com to learn more. And if you would like to take advantage of a 14 day free trial, go to concealedcarry.com forward slash 14 day 14 day to take advantage. So, uh, also, I mentioned our next sponsor, an ammo discount for Guardian Nation members. So, that, that sponsor is Ammo Supply Warehouse. AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com is their website. Uh, I know ammo has been a challenge for many folks in the last year, year and a half, as it has been for me as well. I had to pick up reloading again, uh, you know, since uh, the shortage. You know, I know some, some of you will be like, well, where can you get components? Well... Fortunately, I had some still in stock from years ago, powder, primers, bullets. And as I've been patient and, uh, you know, have, have looked for deals, I've been able to find deals on components. So, but here's the other thing. You can just go to a reliable supplier like AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. And I'll tell you what, their prices have been coming down. That's a good sign. Just like I've seen lower prices from a variety of vendors online. So right now, I could tell you guys that Ammo Supply Warehouse has 9mm ammo in stock. They've got 40 and 45 ammo in stock. They've got some rifle ammunition in stock. They actually have more in stock now than I've seen in quite some time. And the prices are the best prices I've seen on their site in quite some time. And Guardian Nation members are going to save an extra 5%. And that goes a long ways in this day and age with high ammo prices. So guys, check out AmmoSupplyWarehouse.com. Appreciate them being a sponsor of today's episode. So let's get into today's news and gear reviews episode. So first up, we have some industry news. Matthew, what's our first story? All right, let me pull this up. Uh, this comes from the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. Um, this uh, says a, a study data clearly underscores the continuing need for American gun ownership. Uh, the FBI Uniform Crime Report uh, that comes out um, yearly gives basically uh, all the information from law enforcement agencies that actually report to uh, the FBI with uh, all different crime statistics and data. And so 2020 uh, uniform crime report says that armed private citizens killed more criminals during the commission of a felony that were killed by police. Um, and that's, this is in 2020. So the numbers here now we're talking like extremely low numbers. If you look at, you know, the, 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 
amount of information that's coming in from across the country. Um, but basically it says um, last year, according to the data, uh, armed citizens killed 343 cr- criminals during the commission of a felony. Police fatally shot 298 felons. So yeah. Th- so th- <clears throat> this is really interesting. Yeah. So armed citizens killing more criminals than police, 343 compared to 298. And it did specify 343 criminals killed by armed citizens during commission of a felony and police fatally shot 298 felons as well. Okay, so is this a, really honestly a surprise to anybody? I don't know. Maybe maybe it is to some people. Uh, it, it's one of those things I, I don't think I had really thought about it, but you know, we share so many stories on this podcast, the justified save stories where people use justified self-defense, uh, deadly force even to defend themselves, their lives, the lives of the, those they care about. So, you know, the, I guess maybe, maybe my perspective is a little different than some other people's because I see so much more of it since we're covering and reading those stories so often. At the same time, you, you look at police and you know that guns are getting drawn by police every day across this country in many cities, most cities. Uh, a lot of those are, I don't know if innocuous is the right word or not, but you know, it, it, police, I mean, Matthew, I'm sure you back me up on this. I mean, guns get drawn by police way more often than they get used. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Um, but here's the other interesting thing. So is true by armed citizens as well. Yeah. Guns get drawn and not used you know, as far as like fired or someone get shot and killed way more than how many times they, you know, someone actually gets killed by an armed citizen and justified deadly force. So just kind of an interesting perspective. And it's interesting to see some specific numbers on this. So armed citizens and, and, and apparently they're using the definition of armed citizens as citizens that are justified in their use of deadly force as far as i can tell so pretty interesting stuff this actually dovetails really nicely with another article our next article uh which by the way guys we post all of our articles in our show notes with these episodes uh if you're following this on our website you'll see that the this won't be published until next week on the website but Uh, or if you're hearing this, you know, through the podcast feed, then it, that means it is already, in fact, published. I'm, I'm just saying this for the benefit of those that are watching live. But uh, these are, every one of these articles we share today are listed in the show notes on the website at concealedcarry.com as of the publishing of the episodes. But if you're listening on the podcast feed, you'll also be able to typically access the show notes within the podcast app that you're playing the episode on as well. So uh, it's hard to specify exactly how that works for every app out there. But I just want to let you know that the the links to these stories are available in the show notes of the episode. Uh, So our next uh, story here is from the Washington Times. And the title of this one is Guns Used More for Self-Defense Than Crimes. This is interesting, mostly because it's likely impossible for us to get anywhere close to an approximation of how often guns are actually used in crimes, because I suspect it happens a lot and they're not, you know, it happens a lot and it's not reported. 
but it probably is also true in cases of self-defense that a lot of things happen that may not necessarily be reported. Uh, so this article is pretty interesting because it, it breaks things down uh, and really goes down into the numbers and talks about a couple of different surveys and uh, research studies. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to break down here. We probably don't have an, enough time to really get down into it too much. But I do want to highlight a couple of things. So the first thing here is it says, according to the National Crime Victimization Survey, there were around 480,000 criminal uses of guns in 2019. Now, I'm going to jump to the bottom of this article because this is interesting because they're estimating. This is the National Crime Victimization Survey. Okay. And what this is is a survey where... uh, they are asking individuals if they've been victimized, okay, as part of a crime, and and how this where this comes out is was a gun used as part of that crime that was committed against you, right? And so, four hundred eighty thousand uses. Now, curiously, jumping down to the bottom of the article says from the same survey findings, they estimate seventy thousand to a hundred thousand annual defensive gun uses that seems very, very low and is completely an outlier compared to about 20 some odd other surveys that show much higher numbers for defensive gun uses. What's curious is that in the national crime victimization survey is it asks individuals about uh, being victims of crimes and whether guns were used as part of the commission of those crimes. Then it also asks uh, in, in another survey that they do asks about individuals using a gun in self-defense, but it's completely, how does it say? They, they ask that, they don't specifically ask that. They simply say, if you would like to volunteer your experience with something like that, then please go ahead and share. So in other words, they're not captured. It's not even close to being equal in how they're capturing the data because in one case, they're specifically asking people, were you a victim of a crime? Was a gun used? Yes. Okay. And then they record that. In the case of when, when a victim uses a gun in self-defense, it's they're not asking specifically if you used a gun in self-defense. They're just saying, if you happen to, you may volunteer that information to us, and here's how you would share that information with us. So it's kind of interesting why they take that approach. So I mentioned that just to highlight kind of the disparity between the National Crime Victimization Survey uh, and and why in that one survey you see 480,000 criminal uses of guns, but then only 70 to 100,000 uses of self-defense for as far as guns being used. So then this article goes into a bunch of other sources of information. A 2013 review of the literature by the National Research Council found almost all national survey estimates indicate that defensive gun uses by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminals, which estimates of an or which with estimates of annual uses ranging from 500,000 to more than 3 million. That's a lot. The vast majority of these surveys indicated that there's at least a million annual defensive gun uses. Of these, the most reliable survey found at least 2.1 million defensive gun uses each year. So, and we've known this for some time. In fact, even going back to uh, studies that Gary collected 
uh, years ago, looking at data from the 90s, uh, we, we knew even back then that the estimate was about 1, 1.2. 1 million defensive gun uses uh, in the United States each year. Now, we would anticipate that since the late 1990s, when that information was uh, 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 gathered, that uh, that it would be more than that now. Number one, we have a greater population. We also have a greater number of individuals that uh, own guns and carry guns. In fact, another upcoming news story talking about the number of concealed carry permits in the country. So all this to say, oh, there was one other interesting thing. Okay, so this one was really interesting because this was a a 2021 National Firearms Survey directed by William English of Georgetown University. And this is a very comprehensive one, I might add, compared to some other surveys that have been done. This survey surveyed more than 50,000 Americans and identified out of that 16,000 gun owners. So that's a substantial number. Like you can actually get very good data from us, you know, assuming that the sampling was done properly from a variety of demographics and locations across the U.S., which I haven't dug deep into that, but it says that a number of methods were used to ensure that the, the, uh, uh, viability of the survey da- data. Um, and it says in this article in Washington Times that the survey utilized the largest sample size of any study that has ever been conducted on defensive gun use. And in fact, is nearly 10 times greater than that of the next largest survey. I mean, why are these sorts of things difficult to, to put together? It's because surveys and conducting research like this costs money. And manpower, like you got to talk to 54,000 Americans and then determine from within that another 16,000 of them that are gun owners in each one. Let's just say each one of those surveys, this is probably conservative. Let's say each one of those surveys is, is 15 minutes long. Just do the math on that and, and figure out how much manpower it takes. And that's just doing the surveys. There, there's the work that's involved in actually getting the people to respond to a survey in the first place. So, uh, in fact, years and years ago, when I was a young man, I worked in a survey call center for a brief time, not my favorite job in the world. And out of like 200 calls that I might place, maybe one person would actually do a survey. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, well and, and that's including like you were looking for specific things, right? So you'd ask them screening questions. You know, do you fit this, this, this category or demographic or this or that? No, you don't. Okay. Thanks very much for your time. Click. Right. So like you had to call a lot of people just to get the one, you know, to, to find the right person that number one was willing to talk to you. And that matched the, you know, the, the, the purpose of the survey, you know, that, that, could actually ask answer the questions you were looking for. So the point is that's why these surveys this one's significant. This is a this is a big, big, big deal. Uh well, miss, go well, ahead. Just just real point uh, a quick point on, on no just a quick point on the the difficulty of getting capturing data, um, especially with gun owners, right? Like if someone random person calls you up and says, Hey, I'd like to do a survey uh you know, were you involved? Were you a victim of a crime? Did you use a firearm? Like some people may not even want to get involved and say, yeah, I, I have a firearm. I have five, you know, here's the serial numbers, you know, like um, so that 
that's a barrier right there to getting, you know, yep. really specific data on this. So you that's why these numbers correct. are hard. Yeah, these numbers are hard to pin down. Yeah, I, amongst gun owners, uh, we, we trend to be uh, um, cautious in sharing the fact that we are gun owners and what we have or might have or what we do and what our lifestyle uh, choices and, and daily, you know, uh, uh, routines are for obvious reasons, for security ones, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very, very challenging to get good, good data. But this is an impressive uh, survey here. So now, based on this 2021 study from Georgetown University, they found that guns are used defensively by civilian firearms owners in approximately one 0.67 million incidents per year. That is significant. Okay. Because for years I've looked at a number of different surveys and I've personally felt like the, the number was somewhere in between what, you know, they were kind of had on the low end about 400,000 and on the high end, like 1.5 million. And so I've always just felt figured, you know what? It's probably somewhere around a million times per year that it, that guns are used in de- for defensive purposes. Um, this being a very comprehensive survey, coming up with 1.67 million is pretty significant. Handguns are the most common firearm deployed for self-defense, used in 65.9% of defensive incidents. And in most defensive incidents, 81.9%, no shot was fired. So that is really, really interesting. And again, we just shared the uh, data that uh, was 343 armed citizens killed somebody in defense in 20, was it 2019? I think that data was from. So uh, you start doing the math on this, right? Okay. And, and, and again, this is, says 81.9% of the time, no shots are fired. So, uh, Obviously, the number of times somebody is shot and killed is a very, very, very small fraction. There's a there's a fairly significant amount of times where shots are fired, and either nobody's injured because shots are missed, or people are injured, injured and able to be treated, right? So it's just interesting to see kind of how this breaks down. Besides producing an estimate of defensive gun uses, this survey estimated also that 81.4 million uh, adults in America own guns. It's the highest number I've seen in a while. Mm-hmm. 57.8% of gun owners are male. 42.2% are female. 25.4% of blacks own firearms. Handguns are the firearm most commonly used in defensive incidents. 65.9% followed by shotguns, 21% rifles, 13.1%. A majority of gun owners, 56.2% indicate there are some circumstances for which they carry a handgun for self-defense. About a third of gun owners, 34.9%, have wanted to carry a gun for self-defense in a particular situation, but local rules prohibit them from doing so. Okay, keep in mind, this is saying 81.4 million Americans own guns, and then it's saying more than a third admit that, they have, that they've wanted to carry a gun, but local rules prevented them from being able to do so. Wow, that is not insignificant. 30.2% of gun owners, about 24.6 million people have have owned an AR-15 or similarly styled rifle. Also incredibly significant. That is huge. That's a lot. Talk about common use of a firearm. (laughs) 48% of gun owners have owned magazines that hold over 10 rounds. Also, again, significant. This is significant because that is a standard now. 
as ruled upon by the Supreme Court, that when we're looking at restrictions, common use, right? Like in terms of all out banning something, hmm, yeah, and there's a push, we know that, to ban certain classes of firearms or capacities of firearms and things. So this this is really, really interesting and quite good data. Again, assuming that the and from what I've seen from other sources, seems to indicate this survey was done very well in terms of how it was put together and collected this data. And if that is all true, like this information, this data is very this is this is a big, big, big deal, guys. I just wanted to highlight that. I know I spent a bunch of time talking about this and kind of dominating it, but uh, I was really excited about this. Yeah, and um, if you, again, I'll just mention, go to the show notes, check out these stories, because there's a lot of information that we can't cover, or the podcast would be six hours long. But um, <laughs> they, in this article, there's one, uh, another little chunk of data that I thought was is kind of buried down towards the end, but uh, it says 80% of defensive gun uses do not involve shots being fired, like you said, Riley. And then it goes on to say, more than half included situations where with two or more assailants... Um, mm. this shows that guns function as vital force multiplier that equalize disparities between victims and their offenders. Um, you know, and that's, that's pretty telling. Cause a lot of times we think of the solo attacker and we're like, eh, if I got, you know, more, if I need more than five rounds, you know, I'm not getting into a shootout, you know, and all this stuff, but more than half of the times, um, that involved guns not being fired, uh, it seems, uh, to indicate that, there were two or more assailants. At least that's what was reported in the, in the, in the study. So. Yeah. Uh, You're, you're absolutely right. That is huge. Uh, Recognizing that they are in fact a force multiplier, that it is a great equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That uh, I mean, it, it is an important and fundamental right to be able to defend oneself because without that, Nothing else can really truly exist in a free society. Personal secure, safety and security, right? Mm. And we know our government cannot promise and cannot guarantee delivery on that safety and security on the individual personal level. And so where this matters is with each one of us individually, one by one. We are our, it's as uh, my buddy Mickey Shook says, be your own calvary. Right, right on. We are, and as Dave Spaulding says, similar thing, right? Similar thought con, uh, process uh, uh, that you are your own first responder. Absolutely. So it's pretty cool to see data like this come out that supports that in a in a big way. Now, will that be ignored by politicians and mainstream media to large degree? Yeah, most likely. But uh, I, I've got this Washington Times article, and I need to do a deeper a deeper dive into. I mean, this all just came out in the, like the last few days, and so I, there hasn't been time to, for me to be able to to dig into this study. So uh, I plan to do that because I'd like to read it and understand it at a more at a deeper level because this is this has the potential of of carrying some weight for some some time. So I mentioned that we got another article talks about um, 
about the number of permits in the country, but also this last survey mentioned the percentage of men versus female, male versus female gun ownership. And so Matthew, why don't you tell us about this Amoland article uh, that about the Harvard research, Harvard, yeah, the Harvard research indicating about half of new gun owners are women. Yeah. So this goes into uh, a 2021 uh, firearm survey and um, it's just talking about new gun owners. So um, it says an estimated 3.5 million women became new firearm owners from January, 2019 through April of this year, 2021. Um, About 4 million men became new gun owners over that same period of time. So, I mean, almost 50, 50, right? Um, it said, um, so this was 46%, 46.6% were female new gun owners. Um, so the, the article goes in and it kind of, um, it uses a Pew Research um, uh, study from 2017 where they did a similar thing, uh, asking a question about using a firearm for self-defense and between men and women. And so in that, um, in that 2017 study, it says male and female gun owners are about equally likely to cite protection as the reason why they own guns. Um, Nine in 10 in each group say that this is the reason. 65% and 71% respectively say it it is a major reason. And then Mm -hmm. it goes on and says, but far larger shares of women than men who own guns say protection is the only reason they own a gun. So about a quarter of women who own guns, 27%, are in this category compared with just 8% of men who cite self-protection as the only reason. Um, and so if you kind of extrapolate this, right, and like kind of plug that kind of idea of 27%, um, you know, of, of women, that's their, their only, you know, purpose for owning the firearm is self-defense, then we're looking at, you know, 3.5 million new gun owners. If you take 27% of that, I'm not a genius in math, but it's a high number of women who are um, getting firearms specifically with the sole purpose of, of personal defense with that gun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, all that data makes sense there too, you know, uh, talking about how 27% of women uh, versus 8% of men uh, say that, protection is the only reason they own a gun. I mean, that just, that makes sense because, uh, just looking at the psychology of it, you know, that, that men are far more likely to be more interested in things than women are. Women are more likely to be practical in this respect. Uh, so they're less likely to be collectors. Uh, they also are less likely to be hunters. So, you know, just kind of going through the re- the various reasons why a person might own a gun and, you know, personal protection as we just talked about the importance of is is the practical reason i mean for i know for many people hunting is a practical reason as well but uh this just makes this makes sense you know on the, on the psychological level of it um pretty interesting stuff and i mean we we've known that women have accounted for a lot of the sales of guns in the last year to two years and so this this information just backs that up in a, in a big way. So yeah, that is, that is not unsubstantial to see sure. that many of new gun owners being women. And I'll tell you my, my one hope for stuff like this, my one hope for this is that it begins to sway the issue of the, the more of the political issues surrounding the second amendment. 
because we also know that women are more likely to be uh, on the liberal side of things versus the conservative side when it comes to politics, right? Which means they're more likely to align themselves with the Democratic Party, which by platform is generally not gun friendly, right? So could this result in a change as people view political platforms and 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 in the issues on on those platforms i don't know one could hope one will we will see so yeah again we try to take a nonpartisan uh stance on the podcast but i think everybody recognizes where certain parties in this country stand on the basis of the second amendment and the one reason why we take a nonpartisan stance, and I know that this bothers some of our audience. They're like, why, don't, why are you always beating around the bush? Is because I, we believe in principles more than we believe in party. We believe in the Second Amendment more than I, I believe in the Second Amendment more than I believe in just about anything else, but on a national or political level, along with free speech. And one of those guarantees free speech, the Second Amendment. Okay, so... Like this, 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 in my opinion, transcends politics, transcends parties and ideologies. So anyway, all right. Just want to make, make sure, make sure that's clear. Cause I, I know I can't assume that anybody, that everybody listening has listened to us for a long, long, long time and has heard our, our discussion and our stance on this before. Mm -hmm. Next uh, article on the crime report.org. This is referencing a new paper published by John Lott, also Carlisle Moody and Rujun Wang or Wang of the Crime Prevention Research Center. So in this study, they are, or in this paper, they are highlighting uh, how the, the number of concealed handgun permits has skyrocketed to over 21.52 million. Wow. That is a lot. Because it, I remember, I we've reported about the number of concealed carriers in this country on this podcast before. The podcast has been going on for five and a half plus years now. So you go back to 2016, which is pretty much about the beginnings of the found you know the foundation of this podcast. This is a 48 percent increase in permittees, concealed carry permit holders nationwide since 2016 that is huge and it's a 10.5 percent increase over the number of permits counted in 2020 so in one year permits went up by 10.5 percent huge mm -hmm. absolutely I, I i will say out of all the stories we're covering today this is one that surprises me the most some of the other things confirm things I sort of already knew, mm -hmm. but, and, and I know it, it's not that we didn't know that permits were on the rise, but to see that it is at the number that it is at 21 plus million, 21 and a half million. That's huge. Cause I, I remember reporting on this not that long ago and saying about 18 million. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's a big, big, big deal. Uh, these numbers, according to this article, and I agree with this, are particularly topical given that the U.S. Supreme Court will soon hear the concealed carry case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Corlett in November. That case will determine whether those requesting permits need to provide a, 
quote unquote, proper cause, which means a good reason for obtaining a permit. And I am so, so anxious about that case. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel reasonably confident that it will go the way I think it'll go, which I think will be in favor of concealed carry, meaning because I think the idea that we have to show probable cause or to show proper uh, cause. a good cause, whatever the t- phrase was used there, proper cause, proper cause. Yeah, I knew it started with a P. <laughs> I think is ridiculous. And I, I, I personally believe the makeup of the Supreme Court right now will agree with that. Could be wrong. They've shocked me before, but I'm, I'm very cautious. I'm cautiously very optimistic that yeah, it'll go the way I think it will. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to. Um, and, and to further, like you know, jaw dropping statistics here is that what is it? Eight states, I think. Uh, or no, maybe five, five this year alone have uh, gone to constitutional carry or, you know, um, don't require a permit, a concealed carry permit to to carry a firearm. So, you know, th- there are more states are allowing concealed carry without a permit. And it, so the, the fact that there are still people getting permits um, at this high of a level over last year, despite states making it easier to conceal carry without a license is, I mean, the likely number of this is much higher uh, of increase. Yeah, no, you're right. You're (laughs) yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now they, they seem to indicate that there's 21 states that aren't reporting data since they became constitutional carry, but actually uh, most of those states that have, that have, adopted constitutional carry are still also issuing permits and right. still track and or report those numbers. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a statement there about 21 states not reporting. That's not quite 100% true. Um, but, but people may I, be carrying without getting the license now. Correct. It means that there are a number of people that, uh, that we can't count now. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to do another, uh, uh, Georgetown University study mm-hmm. and ask that question from 16,000 well, respondents. And one number we'll never know are the number of criminals that carry without a permit. Well, I guess we do. We know 100% <laughs> of criminals carry without a permit, but <laughs> or, you know, felons and such, but I digress. So other big news, um, uh, and this is from oh, several weeks ago, but Matthew, tell us about uh, David Chipman. Yeah, this I threw this in. We haven't been on talking about news and stuff, and this was pretty newsworthy at the moment at the time uh, back in sep- early part of September. But uh, David Chipman, the notorious guy that uh, Joe Biden picked to uh, to run the ATF, he uh, his nomination was withdrawn. Um, this was back in on September 9th, um, which is a great thing, right? Because the guy is completely openly anti-gun. Uh, he was uh, part of um, uh, the, uh, what's the Gifford gun group? Uh, yeah, uh, drawn a blank. Every town, right? No, that's not. No, 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 no. Every town's, um, it's, uh, I think it's just, what is it Gifford's, called? Gifford's gun, Gifford's gun. Something 
Gifford's gun group. Yeah, that know. one. We'll, f- we'll figure. I'll, I'll remember it once we go on to the next uh, story. But the the uh, he's completely anti-gun. Uh, he was a senior policy advisor for the Gifford Gun Group, whatever, if that's the actual name of it. Um, and he... Gifford's Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. There that's why you can't remember it because there it's a long, <laughs> long title. No, now known as the Gifford Gun Group. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the, very good that he was with, his name was withdrawn. However, you know, um, it... There will be another nomination looming. We don't know who it is, and it's likely to be just as bad, but maybe more cloaked than this. Maybe somebody who is, uh, that's my fear, right? Like somebody who is all of, you know, what David Chipman is, but just not, it's not known. He's not out there as uh, as this guy publicly. So um, that's the that's a concern, but we just got to be vigilant and aware and, and get it, continue to um, put pressure on uh, our politicians and, and make sure that the people that are slated to run these groups, especially something like the ATF um, are not political hacks that are bent on an ideology that is, you know, going to attack half of the country just because they own a firearm and done nothing else wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right, got to keep moving along here. Truthaboutguns.com reporting that Sig Sauer will not exhibit at SHOT Show 2022. It's a bit of irony here because just yesterday I got registered for SHOT Show uh, with a media pass. Uh, I think Matthew did as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I've been skeptical for some time as to whether the SHOT Show would actually happen this year. Uh, Like last year got canceled. I kind of wonder if it would still go go on this year this coming year or not it's all it's for at least the last i don't know how long now it's been traditionally held in the mid to latter part of january of of each year so that's coming up here in a couple of months and uh, i'll tell you it makes it harder on organizations to have shows when major participants in those shows don't show up and sig sauer has for years now had a big, big, big presence at SHOT Show. It won't be the same, honestly, without a company like Sig Sauer. I mean, they have one of the largest, most recognizable booths in the whole show. So just mm-hmm. not seeing that booth there will be kind of kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, th- this sort of thing generates the potential for, potentially generates some momentum for other large companies to follow suit, which is pretty much what happened with the NRA show this earlier this year that got canceled, right? You had, uh, you know, a couple of big players pull out and then more big players pulled out. And before you know it, it's like, well, how are we going to have a show when Glock and Smith and Wesson and Sig Sauer and FN and Beretta and all these companies are not even going to be there. Right. It's not a good look to not have those, those big players at your show. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen here in the next few weeks to next month or two, if there's going to be other manufacturers that follow suit. Now, why might that happen? All right. So I know that for some people, it's like, oh, come on, you know, we need to move on with life, you know, in the age of uh, COVID-19, like we've, we've dealt with this long enough now. And, you know, like we, there's, we know a little bit better how to minimize risks. Uh, but uh, here's the thing. 
and they say so much they say as much in their press release that they send a large contingent of employees now sig probably has i think like 20,000 employees or something okay maybe not it says 2600 i thought it was more than that i thought they had way more employees than 2600 but they send 140 employees to their to the show okay and those employees come from all the different divisions of sig sour okay and all of them are going to go to a multi-day sh- large show event like this and have the potential for contracting COVID and then taking it back and then exposing others that work with them to COVID. And you know what? SIG's already behind on fulfilling orders, orders to the military, uh, d- just general orders to the public for, you know, guns and all kinds of products that they make and sell. Uh, so, I can kind of understand from the financial aspect of this because you, if you have a bunch of your workforce go down with COVID, then you can't make the stuff that people want to buy. And then you get more and more and more behind and that's going to hurt the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So and besides the, the, the more human angle of this, which is you don't want your employees to get sick and you don't want any of them to die. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and they mentioned the financial. I mean, they would have to retool their booth and all kinds of stuff. And um, yeah, I, I think a lot of companies are looking at this and saying, you know, we did it last year. They're looking at the numbers. Hey, we didn't have a shot show. Then what were the numbers? What did we save basically based off of like all the money that we don't have to, you know, the the millions of dollars we don't have to invest in going to shot show? Did it hurt us financially? You know, like. Um, and maybe we can make up for that in other ways and doing different things. So it's probably a financial number too. And, um, you know, like, like everything you have to, you have to balance all that stuff. So who knows? It's, uh, it's interesting. Cause I know they, they sponsor the, uh, the range day, right? Like normally. So we'll see. Well, they, yeah, they do their own thing. So obviously yeah. that's not going to happen this year. Yeah. Um, you know, that, and I'll be honest, I kind of already expected that to mm-hmm. some degree. I kind of wondered if they would at the very least cancel their their media day that mm-hmm. they you know they they host themselves, but maybe right. still have a smaller representation at shot show, but you know they're not even gonna do that. So um yeah, we've we've had the privilege of attending their range, you know, their media range day uh, that that they self-host each year for the last several years since it's a good time, you know, and it's 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 a, a cool way to to see them show off their new wares, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. most of the other manufacturers participate in the industry day at the range, which is traditionally held the day before Shot Show kicks off. Sig Sauer launches their media range day the day before that at their own facility. I mean, it's not their own, but it's a separate range in the Las Vegas uh, Valley, and. Uh, so I'll be disappointed to miss out on that and see, you know, what new cool stuff they have coming. But uh, looks like, you know, we got our invites to Industry Day at the Range and SHOT Show, of course, we mentioned that. So be curious to see uh, what other cool products and things are released at SHOT Show, assuming it happens this year. Mm-hmm. All righty. Again, moving on. Uh, this is a cool story. I'm glad you sh- you shared this one, man. This is that. Uh, newyorkpost.com nypost.com uh, I am really 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 glad I saw this because this dude is awesome and in fact I'm going to share this 
my screen here for those that are uh, watching with us uh, together here. So this is a New Jersey rabbi. His name is Raziel Cohen of Morris County, New Jersey. And so, I mean, he's a rabbi, right? Uh, he's a, he's obviously a devout, you know, Jew. Uh, and he's wearing the traditional Kabota uh, jacket. All right. So the black jacket, I mean, most of us are probably familiar at, le- at, at the very least with the stereotypical view of, of a Jew wearing a black jacket and a hat and a belt and everything. Right. So he, he, what I appreciate about this guy is I can tell that this is somebody that's really kind of switched on, you know, like he's not your average concealed carrier. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and start playing this video. And I know that those of you that listen to the podcast only, but look at that dude draw his gun. Like that's pretty legit. Mm-hmm. Like that's better than 90 plus percent, 95% perhaps even of concealed carriers. This is somebody that has practiced and trained a fair amount. And, you know, so he, what the, 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 the jacket or the coat that he's designed is it has the traditional buttons and belt and everything. Uh, but everything is held together with snaps. So he's able to clear the garment, this, this coat by just, ripping those snaps open and gain access to his firearm, which is concealed in the appendix position just below that. Here's an image of his setup there, which is again, pretty impressive. Like mm-hmm. it's not something we see. I wouldn't, if I was seen, if I was looking at this dude on the street, I mean, if I thought he was carrying a gun, I would not have guessed he was carrying a Glock <laughs> 19 with red dot and a light, a weapon mount of light and a spare mag <laughs> in the appendix position, you know, in one of these, uh, well, I call them the tactical cod piece now, but, uh, you know, the, the, um, what do you call it? I'm having a brain fart, Matthew, the type of holster that is, uh, sidecar holster sidecar. Think, thank yeah. you. Jeez. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, he calls this the tactical capota, which mm-hmm. is made by a manufacturer out of Florida. Uh, they cost about $550 and he just, you know, he talks about how, uh, you know, he, he recognizes these attacks against Jews that have happened. Like the Boston rabbi was stabbed, uh, uh, in July outside of a Jewish day school. We had, this was a personal story, a local story to me. We had a, a Jewish uh, student, uh, killed here in Denver just a month or two ago. Uh, obviously there was a, the attack against a, uh, 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 man, I am not thinking well today. A, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's the name of their synagogues? Jeez. Oh, man. yeah. I was so trying to track you, where you're going. And I, I know, man, the brain just stopped working all of a sudden. I'm, I'm enthralled looking at this article. I just think it's so <laughs> cool. Uh, maybe I'll start wearing a, cool like i i, I don't want to like <laughs> appropriate you know someone else's culture or anything but uh you know wear a black coat around and with snaps i don't know it's kind of cool it's just i appreciate seeing people that 
can adapt and be creative and solve problems. And that's what this is doing. And it's awesome. And it looks like it'd be quite effective and that's cool. So good, good on him. Yeah. And it's cool. He makes a statement in the video. Um, he says something to the effect of, you know, we're not trying to take the place of police. Uh, we just want to fill the gap until the police get there. Like we want to be able to do something until the police respond and get on scene. And that's a per, I mean, like that sums up the mentality, right? Like it, it, for many non-concealed carriers that don't understand why people carry gun, they believe that they're going out to, you know, affect justice or, or, you know, you know, put their will on somebody else or, or do something like this. And it's, it's that for the actual concealed carrier who is, you know, defensive minded, they understand, Hey, this is for my self-defense until the police can get there because who knows what's going to happen in that, in in that, you know, that timeframe. Um, and, and, you know, I've had a, this kind of stood out to me because I've been, uh, I've, I, I, personally been training this guy, uh, a rabbi locally in the area here. And he's been, um, maybe for almost a year now coming off and on for some, uh, private lessons and stuff. And we talk and there is a very difficult, um, barrier to break as far as gun ownership in the Jewish community. And, you know, these guys are Hasidic Jews. They're very devout Mm -hmm. in, in stuff. And, um, and so there is a, a, a cultural or, a um, an ideological um, shift that's happening with people that that are starting to see firearms not as the media wants them to see as like these demonically possessed items that you know it, 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 that they are tools in the hand of people that want to use them righteously to to save life and I think this is a is an awesome story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a uh, clever solution to a problem. So good on him. Uh, and we got a couple of new gun product releases uh, that have come out here in the last few weeks or last month. Uh, so first up, we got one from Smith & Wesson, uh, th- which is the new Shield Plus 3.1 inch. The Shield Plus released and announced earlier this year. So now they're releasing the 3.1 inch optics ready model. So, hey, you know, way to, way to go, Smith & Wesson. It'd be a little late to the game, but still still getting there. Good, good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm not trying to disparage them necessarily. Just, you know, it, it's just, this has been an ongoing um, thing with me since Jacob and I attended, I think our first shot show, what, five years ago, probably now together. I, I attended my first one uh, before that, but I just remember telling him, dude, I give it like five years and every major manufacturer will be making guns that, are ready for optics or come with optics on them. And the one thing I didn't necessarily expect was to see how many small pistols are now optics ready. I think in my mind, then it was uh, Glock 17s, 19s, you know, P320 full size and compact type, you know, like that kind of size. My expectation was that everybody, every manufacturer be making stuff to support optics ready pistols of that size. But it's coming, becoming more and more a thing with the small micro-compact or subcompact concealed carry market as well. So here is the new Smith & Wesson Shield Plus optics ready model. Cool. Shield Plus, of course, being Smith & Wesson's answer to the P365. Mm-hmm. So it has greater capacity. Now, on the flip side, one company with one pistol that 
still wants to do things their way and have a six plus one capacity is Beretta with their APX A1 carry pistol. So the APX it was announced a few years ago, uh, but this is the APX A1. And this one is also, again, coming optics ready and will be adaptable by, via the use of a variety of optics place, plates, including plates for Burris, Seymour, Shield RMSC, and Hall Sun K series, which, by the way, is almost the same thing. The RMSC and the Hall Sun K footprint is virtually the same. Um, which also means with the Shield RMSC plate, you should also be able to use a Sig Romeo Zero optic with this gun as well, although they don't specify that. Probably because they perceive SIG as being a direct competitor with them. Uh, Breda does. But anyway, the APX A1 carry pistol. So this is a small single stack. It is a true single stack. Uh, micro compact 9mm concealed carry pistol. And again, is now optics ready. So there you go. A little bit of news from Beretta. Cool. Good deal. Yeah. So... Sorry, I kind of rushed through those last remaining stories there, Matthew. Uh, but it's time to get into our gear reviews. So mm-hmm. what do you got, brother? All right. So uh, at that conference, the Guardian Conference, uh, Concealed Carry Conference, we were running a lot of people. Uh, we're running their guns a high round count uh, for multiple days and maybe um, under conditions or uh, uh, frequency or volume of fire that they weren't used to um, maybe some new guns as well. And we had a lot of dry guns, a lot of um, malfunctions due to just not necessarily bad guns, um, but because they weren't lubed. And so gunfighter oil um, was kind enough to offer some um, samples there. And we were, I think we were, we were giving them away or selling some as well. Um, But so I, I was able to grab uh, some gun oil and actually just run it on the line and, and help some people out. And since then, I've been using it. I used it in a class uh, on a couple people's guns and my guns, too. And it's fantastic. So Gunfighter uh, Firearm Lubricant and the gun um, the Gunfighter Cleaner here. Um, the oil is is really good. It's it's. Uh, it's more viscous. It's, it's, it's an oil. It's not, it's not a a grease or anything, but it doesn't have a smell. It's, it's, uh, it's very good that way. The, and it worked, it works really well. I like it. Um, and then the cleaner is weird. Uh, the first thing I did, if you guys get some of this is I opened up the bottle and I smelled it and I, I thought, man, it smells like a detergent, like a, like a hand cleaner or some, you know, um, some high strength detergent. And that makes sense that there is some sort of detergent in there that breaks down the grease. And because this works fantastic um, at breaking down grease and, and, and stuff on your, on your gun and you don't need a lot. So um, I I'm sold on the gunfighter uh, gun oil. I know uh, Mickey shook is the guy who's kind of been um, raving about this and I finally got my hands on it. So I thought, Hey, why not? share the uh, share the info awesome well you know i've been using the gunfighter uh, gun oil as well products uh, as of late uh you know M- mickey sent me some as well and and i you know given it a try and i've been very impressed i have nothing but but good to say about it so uh you know i really the important thing is that if a gun is lubricated it's most likely going to run 
right? And I mean, there's a lot of options, a lot of choices out there for lubricants that, again, you use them enough and you use enough of it, probably just about anything will make any gun run. But uh, I've been really impressed with uh, Gunfighter Gun Oil. So good stuff. Good deal. My review today is on a book. Actually, it's a book review that I read recently. I've, I've been on a bit of a book reading terror lately, actually, uh, in the traditional sense. I've actually been reading paper books because uh, I listen to quite a few audiobooks and also read a lot of ebooks via my Kindle or my phone or whatnot. And, uh, but the problem is, is that there's a lot of books out there that, aren't exactly available in some of those alternative formats. And then there's also a few books out there that I just want to own an actual paper copy more for like a historical aspect, like a historical value, so to speak. And so um, I actually have uh, several books sitting on my nightstand that I am planning on working through in the traditional paper form. Just, just to remind myself what reading a book is like, (laughs) And one I recently read, so, and all these, by the way, are, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but a good chunk of these books that I have been reading lately and are, and am planning to read are more of a historical uh, firearms or shooting related uh, uh, context. So this one I just held up a moment ago is Surgical Speed Shooting by Andy Stanford. Hmm. And uh, this is not perhaps super historical necessarily it is about 20 years old in fact i think it was published in 2001 let's take a quick look yeah it was published in 2001 so this book is 20 years old not that old necessarily in the grand scheme of things why was this one relevant or noteworthy to me well i was put onto this one by a friend and actually it was. I have a whole reading list. In fact, if you go and look at Greg Alfred's recommended reading list, a lot of the stuff on his recommended reading list is on my reading list because I know that man's an avid reader and pretty much recommends books for good reasons. So uh, this one is on that list. And so this, this, I was, I was aware of this book, but so, it came up in a conversation lately, and I, I thought, you know, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give this one a, a look. And what was fascinating to me is that. For 2001, and I imagine he was working on this for a while, so probably, you know, let's just say the late 90s and into the beginning of the millennial millennial year here, uh, that Andy was talking about things and teaching about things a little bit ahead of the rest of the industry. I mean, there were definitely dudes that were, you know, of this mindset. 20 years ago, but it wasn't mainstream like it is more so now. Let me just give one example. There's a lot of examples in here. And by the way, I don't, I, I, I do find that there's some things in this book that I think now, 20 years later, we have sort of worked our way through and, and, and decided that they're like, not everything in here applies. In other words, I don't think there's anything in here that would get you necessarily killed in the streets. Um, but, uh, I think there's some techniques he talks about that's like, yeah, we've, we've kind of, I think moved on from that a little bit or shown that some of the problems, uh, that, that maybe people thought existed with other techniques were maybe not as big a problem, but let me give one example of one thing 
that I think was a little bit ahead of its time considering the age of this book. And that is that he flat out calls out the weaver stance as being not the way. Hmm. Now I want to be careful because I don't, I, I don't try to necessarily take the approach of, you know, there is, this is the way, you know, kind of thing to a lot of things with shooting. Um, but with respects to Weaver versus isosceles, if you consider it that, and I don't even consider true isosceles to be the ideal stance. I mean, by isosceles, and by the way, Andy teaches, and that's the other thing here. He's not even teaching straight up isosceles in this book. It's it's a modified isosceles. It is basically what I would consider to be the modern stance, which is arms are equilaterally extended to the target. Okay. And, and so in other words, the upper body is square to the target, but the legs are in more of a fighting stance. That's that's essentially what Andy teaches in this book. Again, 20 years ago. Uh, the weaver stance, he says, it's not the way. It's not the way. And I, and I would say that I, I, I agree with that, that the weaver stance is, you just don't see any world-class shooters, defensive or competitive, really, even, using the weaver stance. Because we've been there and done that. We've tried all these other things, and we recognize that this more modern stance just works better. So, uh, I'm not trying to be too dogm- dogmatic about that, but uh, yeah, I I just was impressed that this is one of those things. It's like I, I went back to reading to this book and trying to put myself even with my mindset 20 years ago with what I knew about shooting, and I was an absolute fuddy duddy 20 years ago. <laughs> And this guy was talking about stuff that, again, hadn't yet even really become... Because like 20 years ago, Weaver was still a very... I I don't know if I'd say it was the dominant stance or not, but it was still a very popular option. And and to be at the forefront there saying, no, this more modern isosceles type stance is the way to go. Again, I really kind of feel like that's been proven out. I do. So follow the science. Anyway, <laughs> I, I enjoyed reading, reading surgical speed shooting. Not a very long book. It was like 140 pages. Yeah. Just under 140 pages. Uh, I thought everything in it was pretty solid. Uh, a few things again, I kind of was like, eh, I don't know about that now, but uh, more or less very accurately describing the modern, modern technique. So, Cool. Well done. And I, I enjoyed the read. So I'd recommend the surg- surgical speed shooting book subtitle, how to achieve high speed marksmanship in a gunfight. If, there, one, if there was one critique, I would say that I don't know if I felt like I fully answered that question based on his content here about how do I ch- to achieve high speed marksmanship in a gunfight. Uh, I, I do feel like there was some missing components that, actually would answer that question a little bit further, but uh, overall, this book was a good basis to getting there. Sorry, you were going to say something. No, I was just going to say, it sounds like you should have him on the podcast instead of me, because he's probably has a, a lot more wisdom to, to spout. I don't know about that, dude. 
you're my bro. <laughs> uh, I, and I don't even know if Andy, so Andy is not really, by the way, you've, you've met Andy. Okay. Yeah. He's the guy at, uh, at the CCW safe dinner we went to. There you go. Yeah. Had a big old beard. Mm-hmm. And was okay. pretty, pretty unassuming. Okay. This is, a, this is his picture on the back of the book. He looks nothing like that now. Not even close. Yes. Granted, this okay. is 20 years ago, right? But I don't even think he's really actively teaching, you know, instructing these days. And I don't even know how much, like, I think he's, he works for Surefire in some kind of role or advisory role or something. Gotcha. But uh, whether he'd want to be on a podcast or not, I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was ahead of his time, I think, in terms of, like, laying out what has now become more the mainstream, but doing it, you know, probably a decade before it, you know, we really started uh, coming around full circle with that. So, so pretty good stuff. I mean, here, and here's the thing. So I'm trying to read a bunch of his more historical or at least older gun books or shooting books uh, because I, I, I'm, I just feel like that my own understanding of things will be more, will be more well-rounded if, I do so. So one book I've started and, and will be working on for a while because it's about this thick is a book called Shooting. That's it. Written by J. Henry Fitzgerald, published in like 1930 or 28 or I don't know, it was basically the 1930s. And this thing is like the Bible about shooting and everything they knew about shooting a hundred years ago. Hmm. And it's really, really fascinating, but it is a comprehensive book and I've enjoyed every bit of it that I've read so far and look forward to continue working my way through that. that that'll be, I, I, I have a tendency of reading books simultaneously. So I've got like three going and so I'll kind of pick one up and read it for a few days and then pick up another one. Sometimes this was one that I started and kind of kept coming back to it the first couple chapters. And then I just plowed through the last, you know, two thirds of the book in, uh, in one day. So cool. Anyway, I'll report back more as I broaden my understanding about historical shooting. <laughs> Very cool. We need to wrap it up. We're over time guys. Thanks so much for being part of this episode. Uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion of the various industry news stories today, as well as our gear reviews. We do need to announce our giveaway winner for the week. So this year or this week, sorry, I got interrupted by a phone call there. Um, we will be giving away a barrel block to yes. one lucky winner. Matthew, who is that winner? Our lucky winner of a barrel block is Brad P. Brad P. Congratulations. Congratulations, Brad. And next week, we're giving away a shall not be infringed t-shirt. One of my favorites. It's a great shirt. Uh, go sign up at concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize to have a chance to win that t-shirt. So right with that. A reminder to train often, train safe, or train right, train often, <laughs> train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. <laughs>